Well, good morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 John. We are continuing this morning in our series titled Absolute Certainty. And it's been a study of the books of 1st and now 2nd and in a bit 3rd John. It took us 22 weeks to get through 1st John. And this morning we're going to cover 2nd John in one day. It might take 22 hours, but we're going to get to it today. We're going to start and finish this book today. Um, but let me just start with this question in, in teeing up kind of the, the text for today. What is truth? What is truth? Where does it come from? Who gets to decide what's true or not? I mean, this is a big raging battle in our country. We have an info war going on and people with different versions of the truth. And in any war, truth is usually the first casualty. And we see that even in the info war. One group bans another group's news story because they say it's, it's, it's fake, it's not real, only to find out later it was real all along. And you just have this battle going on. Some have even called for a government commission to fight information and disinformation. But that sounds kind of dangerous. Who's going to decide what's true and what's not? Truth. How do we know what's true and what's not? Who gets to decide? Well, there are some truths, at least, that we can learn on our own. Consider, for instance, this list of truths that children learn, mostly through experience. First of all, you can't trust dogs to watch your food, right? That's something you learn pretty early on. You can't hide a piece of broccoli in a glass of milk. Did any of you try that? No matter how hard you try, you can't baptize cats. It doesn't turn out well. Puppies still have bad breath even after eating a Tic Tac. When your mom is mad at your brother, don't let her brush your hair. Girls learn that at an early age. It's true. If your sister hits you, don't hit her back. They always catch the second person. Amen. That's right. And finally, the best place to be when you're sad is in grandma's lap. For sure. Amen. These are truths that children learn at a young age on their own. Other truths have to be taught and even revealed. And so as we get into the book of 2 John, we're going to find that the theme running throughout these verses is that of truth. And so the message title this morning, continuing in our series, it's absolute certainty that truth matters. And we're going to look at 2 John verses 1 through 13. There's only one chapter in the book. And three parts to the outline, living in the truth in the first three verses, then living out the truth in verses 4 through 7, it's actually 4 through 6, and then lasting in the truth, it'll be verses 7 through 13. John, if you could bring that up on the back screen when you get a moment, that would be helpful. So, this is a longer text, so we'll just read through it a section at a time as we come to it, and we'll start with the first section, which is verses 1 through 3. Second John, verse 1, the elder 
to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. So we want to look first at living in the truth. And there's just a whole lot in these first three verses. We're going to, these verses will take the biggest part of our time this morning. But after everything that John has covered in his first letter, we come to this second letter and we're going to find that there's really nothing new in here. He's already talked about every subject that you'll see in this letter. But what is different about this, look how it, the second letter begins. It says, the elder to the chosen lady and her children. This is a personal letter to a lady and to her children. The letter in 1 John was to the church at large. This one is very, very personal. Now, some people maintain that the chosen lady is kind of a metaphor for a local church body. It's possible, but if the chosen lady is the church, who are their children? Aren't they part of the church? So that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I believe it's really an individual lady and her children, and the personal nature of this letter kind of reveals that. And this isn't the only personal letter in Scripture. There's others like First and Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon. And I think these personal letters are important because it can be easy to think of the Word of God as just this general revelation to an anonymous group of people out there when in fact the Word of God is a personal letter. It's a personal letter written personally to you. And to me, you could even call it a love letter. Now, that's just not my own imagination. Uh, Jesus says so explicitly in Matthew 22. He's answering a question posed by the Sadducees. And in his response, he says, Have you not read what God said to you? Isn't that fascinating? He didn't say, have you not read what God said to them? Or have you not read what God wrote to them? He said, have you not read what God said to you? It's personal and God speaks through it, which is awesome. He then went on to quote this passage from Exodus. That was more than a thousand years before the Sadducees. But yet... It was speaking to them individually and personally. So the word of God is a personal letter written to you and to me. And God speaks to us through his word. So as we get into this letter of 2 John. Do something for me. Take verse 1 and where it says to the chosen lady and her children. Pencil your name in there. To Cindy and her children. To Steve and his children. And if you don't have children just put your name in there. To Bob. To Carol. Just to underscore the fact that this isn't just a generic letter to them. It's a personal letter to us, to me. So the letter begins, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. Now notice right away, John doesn't name the lady or her children. He doesn't even give his own name. It's kind of anonymous. It's possible that... He didn't want to implicate anybody if this letter fell into the wrong hands. We have to do that with our missionaries sometimes. We did this morning. 
uh, people who serve in, in areas and countries that are closed to the gospel to have the purpose for being there revealed in their name could put them in great harm and could thwart you know, the work of the ministry there. So that may have been why John says this. But notice also that he refers to her as the chosen lady. Your text might say the elect lady. And we see something similar in verse 13 where it refers to your chosen sister or your elect sister. Well, this obviously has some soteriological implications. What is that? Well, soteriology is just a big churchy word for the doctrine of salvation, how we, the study of how we are saved. And you might say, well, that's easy. We're saved by grace through faith. And, and you're right, absolutely. But the question that's divided the church for millennia is whether a person has the free will to make their own choice in that or whether God predestines them to one or the other. We've talked about this many times. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it here. Um, I don't want to distract from kind of the focus of this text, but I don't want to ignore it either. And so... At a high level, believers fall into a couple camps on this particular text. Some might say that the woman was chosen because she received God's offer of salvation by grace through faith, and it was an act of her own will. Others might say that she was chosen solely by a sovereign act of God. She was predestined to be saved apart from any decision of her own. And then probably a third camp. Now, these first two, it's challenging because you can find Bible verses that seem to support both of those interpretations. A third camp might say that while it's somewhat paradoxical, the truth lies somewhere in between. So again, this has been debated for the better part of 2,000 years. If you want to chew on it, let me just frame the quandary this way, real simply. God loves the whole world. That's not the slide. God loves the whole world. That's not it either. What was I doing up here? Did I, I guess the clicker wasn't working. Wow. Here we go. Yes, the quandary. God loves the whole world, yet the whole world is not saved. Now, how you reconcile those two truths will reveal something about your soteriology. So again, I don't want to distract us anymore on this topic this morning. If it interests you, let me know. This is something I've studied for 30 years. I believe it can be reconciled within Scripture. I wrote a paper on it, I think it was about 30 years ago now. Um, so, you know, talk to me later if you want to dive into this more. But he addresses this chosen or elect lady. And then, he, right after doing that, he jumps into the topic of truth. And this is a a favorite topic for John. It's 37 times in his New Testament writings, and it's five times just in these first few verses of this letter. Why such an emphasis on truth? Simple. Truth matters. It matters. We live in an age of postmodernism, which asserts that there are no universal truths whether scientific, philosophical, or even religious. There are only truths, relative truths, based on each person's experience. So, for instance, if you were to say marriage is between one man and one woman, a postmodernist would say, well, that's your truth. That's not my truth. 
It's totally relative. Well, this begs a question, again, what is truth? What is absolute, objective, universal truth and who gets to decide? That's an easy one, God does. God does, he's the only one who is all righteous and he's the only one who's all knowing and so he's the only one who is qualified to decide what represents truth. And guess what? He hasn't kept it a secret. God has gone to great lengths to reveal his truth to you and to me. And he reveals it to us through his word and by his son. And so in John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then he said in John 18, he said, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. God doesn't want us to be ignorant about the truth. He reveals it to us. Now, this doesn't mean that there is no truth outside of God's word. Don't get me wrong on that. Two plus two equals four. That's true, even though it doesn't say so in the Bible. But on matters of life and godliness that God speaks to, his word is absolute authoritative truth, period. Now contrast that with our adversary, the devil. John eight forty four says there is no truth in him, when he lies, he's speaking his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It's kind of like that old political joke. How do you know when a politician's lying? His lips are moving. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the same thing with the devil, right? Pretty much everything he says is either a lie or a setup for a lie. Well, this, the devil's main tactic is deceit, to deceive us. And so this makes it all the more important that we know the truth. Now our society used to embrace God's word as truth. It was the foundation of our republic. But much of our society no longer views God's word as truth. George Barna did a poll in 2020 and he found that 58% of Americans believe that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. Is stealing right? Is it wrong? It depends. What about murder? But even more disturbing is that 48% of born-again Christians say the same thing. Truth is up to the individual to decide. Only 43% of born-again Christians still embrace absolute moral truth. See, what's sad is that the church has abandoned absolute truth because they don't want to offend in some cases or seem judgmental. And so they rationalize that by being more flexible on the truth, it'll make the church more relevant and culturally acceptable and that'll advance the kingdom of, of God and the mission of Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. They've been deceived. And this, these are professed believers. See, what's actually happened is we've returned to the time of the judges. Remember that? That's when everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People want to decide for themselves what is true and what is not. Now, given what we know about sinful mankind, how qualified do you think people are to decide what's right and what's wrong? Not very. 
Now, very this this cartoon is kind of revealing. You got unpleasant truths and comforting lies. <laughs> People will take the comforting lies every time. Romans one twenty five says they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Because see, to our sinful hearts, lies can be more comfortable or pleasurable or profitable or convenient. And left to ourselves, we would decide that that is truth. So with all of this as a backdrop, John writes then in verse 1, to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Well, new life begins when we embrace the truth of God's word in regard to salvation. Some have called it the gospel of truth, the gospel of our salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. And he was the ultimate, ultimate revelation of truth. He said to those who believed, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So embracing the truth is the first step in this marvelous journey of the Christian life. We talked at Easter about the spiritual transformation that happens when we take that first step and embrace the truth of the gospel. God does this marvelous work in us. He takes away our old heart and gives us a new heart. He places his spirit within us. He gives us a whole new system of values and perspectives. And about the spirit, listen to what Jesus said. He says in John 16, 13, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. Isn't that cool? You take this step of truth and embrace the gospel and God gives you his spirit of truth and now he's going to guide you in all truth. Salvation is just the start of the journey. From that point on, the spirit of truth comes and guides us in all truth. This is something an unbelieving world doesn't have. The spirit helps us understand and apply the truths that have been revealed in God's word. To an unbeliever without the spirit, it's foolishness, it's nonsense. He can't understand or discern it. We need the spirit of truth to understand and apply God's word of truth. So our job as believers is to immerse ourselves in the truth. To immerse ourselves in the truth. So we're so familiar with it as the spirit works in us that the enemy's lies have no sway over us. You've probably heard over and over and over again that federal agents, the way they're trained to spot a counterfeit is to study the real thing. And it's true. That's how they're trained. What I find interesting about that is that the most commonly counterfeited bill is not a 50 or a 100. We don't make any bills bigger than 100 now. They no longer make like 500s and thousands. But the most common counterfeit bill is a 20. It's a 20. It's a smaller denomination because it can more easily slip through. See, a big bill, somebody's going to scrutinize it more closely, but not a 20. Well, in a similar way, some of the most common attacks to Christian doctrine will probably come in subtle areas where people tend to let their guard down. This is no big deal. We can be deceived. 
the now late Charles Stanley. He passed away. He went home to be with the Lord just a, a week or two ago. He said this. He said, we're either in the process of resisting God's truth or in the process of being shaped and molded by his truth. Amen to that. That's so true. So John says he loves this woman and her children in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth. See, as the Spirit leads us in the truth, it changes our view of other believers. It changes how we view them and how we act toward them. And this is a theme we saw all throughout 1 John. Our love for other believers is a result of God's love and truth within us. And it becomes an evidence of our salvation. Nowhere is this more clear than in John's first letter when he wrote in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So to live in the truth is to live in love toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. Every true Christian has the same spirit of truth within them. And this is one of the things that binds us together. We share the same beliefs in general. The same values, the same goals of our faith, the same destiny. We're going to be spending eternity together. And so verse 2 says we love one another because of the truth. It changes how we look at each other and think about each other and how we relate to one another. This is, this is one of the things that makes it so difficult to be unequally yoked, if you think about it. And I know there's several in our congregation who are in this difficult situation. Because to be unequally yoked means that we're bound to someone in marriage who does not share the same truth. And so as a result, you're pulling in two different directions. It's a very difficult position. Well, verse 2 says that the truth lives in us and will be with us forever. Many people say this is referring to the word of God, which will never pass away. And we have the word of God in us, and, and uh, it'll never pass away. And, and that is very possible. It could also be referring to the word himself, Jesus Christ, who is also with us and even in us. The spirit that indwells us is called the spirit of truth and it's called the spirit of Christ. And Jesus said, never will I leave you or forsake you. He's always going to be with us. So it could be the word, it could be Jesus Christ himself. But either way, this truth lives in those who believe. And it will be with us forever. So living in the truth means loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, since this is a personal letter written to you and me, then we should make a point of personal application, right? And ask ourselves, do I love the brothers and sisters that God has placed around me? Or even more practically, how am I loving the believers that God has placed around me? How am I doing that? How am I demonstrating that I love them? And as you think about that, keep in mind, Christian love is not an emotion or a feeling, it's an action. 
In fact, that action is often opposed to a feeling. We've said that before. Christian love requires us to do things we don't feel like doing. So if we're not acting in love toward our fellow believers, then we're probably not loving them. So how am I acting in love toward the believers God has placed around me? Well, moving on, verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. This is a really beautiful greeting. I mean, you hear grace and truth a lot. This is grace, mercy, and truth. And it's kind of cool because these are in the order that we experience them. See, God's grace removes the penalty for our sin. God's mercy removes the misery of our sin. And then the result is peace. We experience God's grace, his mercy, and his peace. Well, we have these three, grace, mercy, and peace, and notice that they're all found within the context of truth and love. Another really important point, God's truth and his love must always go hand in hand. When we separate one from the other, we do more harm to the cause of Christ than good. Many years ago, we were teaching, I was teaching a series, I think it was 2016, and it was called Crossroads, Where Christ and Culture Meet. And one of the, the main points that I made in that series is, when it, especially when engaging in a culture, we have to speak the truth in love. And that was my goal for the series. We, we taught on every hot-button issue. Immigration, abortion, politics, things you shouldn't talk about, right? Environment. We looked at God's word. My goal was to speak the truth in love. Well, one of the illustrations that I used back then was this. Here we have professing Christians giving their version of the truth, but without any love. You're going to hell. God hates you. Your destruction is imminent. Well, see, when you take away the love, it comes across as, as a message of condemnation with no love, no grace, no hope, only hate. But then on the other hand, here's another group of professing Christians giving their version of love, but without any truth. We have a number of Christian denominations who perform same-sex marriages and even ordain practicing gay and lesbian pastors. Love and no truth is just equally as wrong and damaging. John Stott said, our love grows soft if not strengthened by truth, and our truth grows hard if not softened by love. That's very true. Truth and love must always go hand in hand. God never gave us his love without his truth, and he never gave us his truth without love, and so we're to do the same. So this grace, mercy, and peace is in the context of love and truth. Well, this is living in the truth. I'm going to pick up the pace here. We're going to look at living out the truth in verses 4 through 6. John writes, it's given me great joy to find some of my children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one that we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. 
And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Well, John now pre presents this new metaphor of walking. And I really like it. He writes in verse 4 of walking in the truth. And in verse 6, walking in obedience and walking in love. And it's a great metaphor. And it's often used of the Christian life. Ephesians 4.1 says we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It describes a Christian life. And it's a great metaphor because a walk speaks of intentional forward progress. Step by step in obedience to the truth. That's what a Christian walk is. It's not meandering around. It has a direction. And the direction is set by the truth. It's even empowered by the truth. It has a direction. It's also not just standing around. It's walking. It's moving. It's taking steps in obedience to the truth. We saw the first step is embracing the truth of the gospel. And verse 4 then speaks of walking in the truth, which signifies this moving forward in obedience to the truth. John was filled with joy when he saw this, this woman's children are walking in the truth, some of them anyway. While many kids are going astray, hers were walking in the truth. They might not have been the most popular kids. They might not have been the coolest kids. But they were walking in the truth, the most important thing. I think the greatest testimony is one of a person who embraced the truth as a child and grew in their understanding of that truth and walked in obedience, never turning away, never swerving. It's not the most sensational testimony. We kind of like to hear testimonies, well, I was a drug dealer. I, I was a prostitute. I was a murderer and God changed me. And you know, like, the, like Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, it's an amazing testimony of God's power. And that's great. But I think the best testimony is one of a person who held fast to the Lord from childhood and went on to walk in the truth. So this is what we see in this woman's children. And if that's your testimony, don't be ashamed of that. It's powerful and it's beautiful. And God can use that. So verse 5, and now dear lady, I'm writing you a new command. I'm, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have heard from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. Now, the first command to love one another, it didn't come with Jesus. It was all the way back in the book of Leviticus 19. Verse 18, that was some 1,400 years before. He said, I'm not writing anything new here. But the motivation for love is new. See, in the Old Testament, love was required by the law. Gosh, I'm just all out of sync today on these slides, aren't I? You know, they're online after the service. You'll find them in the downloads under the PDF, and you can straighten out all your notes. In the Old Testament, love was required by the law. In the New Testament, love is a response to God's love for us. It's a different motivation. John wrote his, in his first epistle, he said, we love because he first loved us. It's a response. And now verse 6 defines this love. 
And this is love. And it says it real clearly, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Well, to walk in truth is to walk in love, and to walk in love is to walk in obedience. If we're not walking in obedience, we're not walking in truth, and if we're not walking in truth, we're not walking in love. They are all bound up together. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament, and Jesus boiled it all down to just two. He said in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, a whole Old Testament hangs on these two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. So to love is to walk in obedience to his commands because his commands are all about love. It's pretty simple. Loving God and loving one another. Now, it's one thing to embrace this intellectually. Yeah, I believe that. Mm -hmm. I study that. I agree with it. I talk about that. It's one thing to talk the talk, right? But God calls us to walk the talk. He calls us to live it out. And John said in his first epistle, 1 John 3.18, Dear children, do not love with words or tongue, but in actions, but with actions and in truth. In other words, don't just talk to talk. It's not wrong to talk to talk, but you got to walk the talk. That's what he's saying. We have to live it out. So then finally, we want to look at lasting truth in verses 7 through 13. And this speaks to our endurance, our perseverance in the truth. It says, I'm going to just read 7 through 11 first. It says, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. We'll stop there at verse 11. As we said in the beginning, Satan is in the business of deceiving people. It began in the garden. Satan convinced Eve that he was telling the truth and God was lying. Think about that. He's a master of deception. And verse 7 says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. And a such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now at the heart of almost, of most false teaching is a denial of the true nature of Christ. It's one of the favorite deceptions of the enemy. Either a denial of his deity or a denial of his humanity. But why does the true nature of Christ matter so much? Can't we just believe? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross. Well, we can't just believe in Jesus without getting a little technical about who he was. It matters because if Jesus wasn't fully God, then he wasn't 
an acceptable sacrifice. He couldn't atone for the sins committed against God. And if he wasn't fully man, he couldn't have died and rose again to, to, to atone for our sins. Both were necessary. He had to be both fully God and fully man to defeat sin and death. And so the enemy wants to pull out one of these critical elements of truth from the gospel. So a good question, if you want to test the authenticity of any teacher, ask them, who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? And let him explain that. Well, we next find a, a warning in verse 8. And God is writing this warning personally to you and me through John. It says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now, that might be a little confusing at first. It's not saying, watch out that you don't lose your, or that you don't lose your salvation. It's not saying that. Remember from last week, God is going to protect forever those he's rescued. There's a beautiful comfort in that. It's not talking about salvation. It's talking about losing something we worked for. See that? We don't work for our salvation. What do we work for? It says rewards. It's talking about losing the rewards that we work for. Rewards are given by God for faithfulness expressed in loving good deeds to other people. And if we're not careful, we can lose those rewards. Some people struggle with this whole idea of rewards beyond salvation. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. I put some, there I am behind again. I put some verses up here for you. If you're interested, if you want to explore that more, rewards beyond salvation, scripture says a lot about it and you'll find it here. You might pay particular attention to Revelation twenty-two twelve. So how would we lose these rewards? By not continuing to walk in obedience to the truth. Maybe we decide instead to just sit it out, to stand rather than to walk, to be idle in our faith. 2 Peter 1, 5 calls this being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can be ineffective and unproductive as a believer. We're still a believer, we're still saved, but we've lost any rewards we might have worked toward. And the enemy really wants to discourage us and keep us from moving forward in obedience to the truth. He wants us to be ineffective. He wants us to be unproductive. So that's the first warning. Then there's another one in verse 9. It says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teachings of Christ did not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What's this about? Well, here's the thing is, as humans, we like new and exciting things, don't we? We're often looking for the next new thing, the latest and greatest. People think it's trendy to be progressive, to like push the envelope, to keep forging into new territory. And you know, things like technology and that, that's not bad. But if that carries over into our Christian faith, it can be really dangerous because it can leave us restless and wanting something different, something new. And so people are 
constantly looking for the latest new thing in Christianity. They buy all the books, they follow the latest trends, they're hoping to find some new thing. But just like God himself, the gospel never changes. This is a fundamental characteristic of truth. Truth never changes. If it does, it wasn't true to start with. So the gospel doesn't change. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever, just like God himself who never changes. So running ahead, I believe it refers to abandoning the truth, probably in a quest for something new and exciting. But again, one of Satan's greatest weapons is deceit. And so we need to examine these things very carefully. If they don't align with scripture, then it's not the truth, and we should have nothing to do with it. That's the second warning. There's a third warning in verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now here's a, a real important clarification here. It's not saying that we shouldn't welcome unbelievers into our home. We're to love the lost. We're to share the love of Christ with them. We're to try to build those relationships that lay the groundwork for the gospel. So it's not talking about welcoming an unbeliever into your house. It's talking about false teachers who are actively against the core truths of the faith. That's what it's talking about. And back then, many churches met in homes. So an extension of welcoming them into your home would be welcoming them into the church. We wouldn't allow a false teacher to teach in our church and in our pulpit and in our Sunday school. That's what this is saying. He says, anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now, by welcome, it refers to something a lot more than the English word suggests. It's not saying, hey, good morning, false teacher. It's not saying that. To welcome him is referring to supporting and endorsing him in effect, sharing in their work. And that's what it says. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Here's the bottom line on this. We're to love those who opposed Christ, but we're not to encourage them in their evil deeds, and we're not to give them a platform for their heretical teaching. That's what this is saying. Now, this next illustration, I question whether they use this or not. It might be just a little bit edgy. And I'm hesitant to blame all of my inspirations on God. <laughs> so maybe this is just a paw. Uh, I almost skipped over it. But I thought about it. To welcome a false teacher into our home or church would be the theological equivalent of having a drag queen story hour in our Sunday school. Okay? It would be encouraging what is evil and giving a platform to what is false. Now just think about that for a minute. It's no less severe to have somebody teach that does not support the foundational truths of God's word and of the gospel. It's disgusting. And we would share in their wickedness if we allowed that to happen. So if that's helpful, a helpful analogy, good. If it's not, brush it aside as one of Paul's late-night inspirations. <laughs> Verses 10 and 11 are a stern warning about how we interact with false teachers. 
And then lastly, John has a farewell in verses 12 and 13. He says, I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. And that's how he ends the letter. Isn't it interesting that despite how personal this letter is, Paul recognized that a pen and paper is still rather impersonal. That was back then. I wonder what he'd say today when so much of our interaction is by text or email or FaceTime or Zoom or the like, live streaming. wonder what he would think about that. On Thursday morning, I had breakfast with my grandsons. I had breakfast with my grandsons via FaceTime. <laughs> it was a virtual breakfast. It was kind of cool because I was sitting right there at the table with them and we're kind of carrying on a conversation. And, and I love that technology allows us to do this, but this is no replacement for face-to-face -face interaction and fellowship. I loved it last week when they were here in church and I could hold them during worship. Ah, Man, that made my joy complete. Well, the same thing. Technology can help us communicate, but it is not a substitute for face-to-face -face fellowship. Do you remember how much we all hated the lockdowns of 2020? We hated that. We couldn't get out and meet together or enjoy a meal together. I remember when it lightened up a little bit. Deborah and I just went through a drive through and got our food and sat in the car at the park and ate it. But there was no fellowship. Well, that had a noticeable impact on people. They'd done studies and said it messed with people psychologically, this isolation. Well, we should be careful that we're not imposing our own version of the lockdown on ourselves by isolating ourselves from other believers. Do we do that? Are you in lockdown? We should enjoy rich, meaningful face-to-face -face fellowship with one another, not just in the foyer on Sunday, but throughout the week, getting together for meals together, talking about the Lord, encouraging one another. This is what God calls us to do. He says in Hebrews 10.25, let us not give up meeting together. That's pretty clear. Don't do it. But, he says, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. <laughs> I see the day is approaching. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a date setter, but I see the day approaching. Kind of like a society does this. Plan a meal with someone in the congregation this week. Get together with them. Have a gathering in your home. Go out to lunch together if you don't want to cook the meal. But your fellowship should be with believers in the church. It's how we encourage one another. It's what makes our joy complete, Paul says. So don't be satisfied just with electronic communication or passing conversation. Well, I need to wrap it up. I need to push the handles forward, as Ron said, <laughs> and bring this thing in for a landing. We began by noting that the word of God is a personal letter to each one of us. And as such, God expects a personal response from each one of us. So in wrapping up, let's just consider 
these questions. And, and they're personal and they should be practical. First of all, what is my standard of moral truth? Am I looking completely to God's word? Is it my absolute truth? Or are there places where I'm bending and twisting it to fit my own desire or to appease the world, to be more acceptable in their eyes? How am I loving the believers that God has placed around me? We're to love because of the truth that lives in us. And this love, it's not a feeling or emotion, it's an action. So what are we doing to love these brothers and sisters all around us? Am I speaking the truth in love? Those two always have to go hand in hand. Watering down one or the other will not serve to advance the gospel or God's Christ's kingdom. Quite the opposite will undermine it. How am I living out the truth? Am I walking the talk? Am I walking the talk in every area of my life? Well, I walk it pretty good on Sunday, but what about on Mondays? Am I walking the talk in my workplace, in my school, in my neighborhood? We're not to love in words or tongue, but with, an action, but with actions and in truth. We're to walk the talk, we're to live it out. How am I loving those who oppose the truth? If we do it without love or without truth, we're, again, undermining the gospel. We're to, do, we're to love them, but we're not to encourage them in their evil deeds, and we're not to give a platform to heresy, but we're still to love the lost. And then in what ways am I encouraging others through face-to-face fellowship? We're not to stop meeting together. And when we do get together, we'll find that it completes our joy because we share the same truth. That truth is in each one of us and it binds us together. So I think this is God's personal challenge to us this morning. It's what it means to live in the truth and to live out the truth in a lasting way. Truth really does matter. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's so frustrating to live in a world where truth is viewed as relative, a world that no longer, a society, a culture, a country that no longer embraces your word as absolute truth. It's frustrating, God. And yet, you've revealed your truth to us. You've gone to such great lengths. You've given it to us in your word. You've shown us what it looks like in Jesus Christ. And we can know that truth. Even more than that, we can know the one who is the truth. We can know him personally. And so, God, as we gather together Sunday after Sunday, Lord, don't let us just agree with the truth or just believe the truth, but help us to live it out, God. Help us to walk the talk in faithful obedience, not standing still, not running ahead, not meandering around, but walking in the truth, diligently, faithfully, persistently, step by step. And God, we want to do this for your kingdom and for your glory. And so we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.